uh, workplaces have started to use work hours or like the willingness to respond at any time of day or be the first one to respond is like a proxy for good quality worker. And so you do, you end up in, you know, with organizations that waste our time with unnecessary paperwork, unnecessary meetings, just so that the powers that be feel as if their workforce is committed and is willing to drop anything or to participate in a meeting that's unnecessary because it's always rushing from one meeting to another is a sign of importance, prestige, and high status. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 19 of Be More Well with me, Jeff St. Pierre. This week, I've got happiness researcher and time expert, Ashley Willens. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to listen. Be More Well is a wellness-focused podcast that started after I found myself looking for inspiration and ways to get my mind and body on a better track. Each week, I have conversations with health professionals, educators, musicians, trainers, athletes, and most importantly, people just like you and I. My mission here is pretty simple. It's to bring you stories from people about how they found their path to wellness, as well as information and inspiration from experts in the field. Just like you, I'm working on becoming the best version of myself, and I hope you're able to find some insight in these conversations. First of all, sorry for missing last week. We had to make some schedule changes with this week's guest, so I assure you that the wait will definitely be worth it. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. If you've been keeping up, you know that this episode is the third part in a series about reshaping the way we view certain aspects of our daily lives. It started back with episode 17, where we spoke about rethinking our impression of success. Episode 18 focused on the subject of life transitions and how we need to embrace them, not run and hide from them. Now this week, episode 19, we're talking about time. So how many times have you said or heard the phrase, there aren't enough hours in the day? We all believe that we're so busy and there's never enough time to squeeze in those things that we enjoy. Uh, Look, I know I've skipped the gym on many occasions because I just couldn't seem to find a space in my day to make it happen. But is our lack of time real? It sure seems real to us, but research says it isn't. In fact, time researchers have found that we have more free time on our hands now than we did 50 or 60 years ago, but we don't use it right. Are you ready for your mind to be blown? I'm so excited for you guys to hear this conversation with Ashley Willens. She's a behavioral scientist and assistant professor at Harvard Business School in negotiations, organizations, and markets. Ashley is also getting ready to release her first book called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. This is what we're talking about here today. I wanted to learn more about her research on time and how we can use it better to find a better route to happiness. Now, before we jump into the interview, I'd just like to ask you to subscribe to Be More Well on whatever platform you're listening on right now, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, whatever it is. That way you'll stay up to date with future episodes. Also, if you like what you hear, I'd appreciate it if you'd rate and review the show. That does help the podcast powers that be recognize what people are liking and help others to find the show. Thank you so much, and let's welcome in Ashley Willens. I was actually just watching your TEDx talk, and I have a question for you, if you wouldn't mind pulling the curtain back on a TEDx talk for just a second for me. Um, When you're up there giving the speech, are you looking at, like, cue cards or teleprompters, or do you have to memorize that entire thing? No, you have to memorize the entire thing. I would never be able to. (laughs) It's really interesting. So behind the curtains is I was doing a TEDx talk, and so they don't have as much budget as... TED proper. And my advisor has given a couple of TED talks now. Many of them have gone viral. And the last one she did, they were not 
doing what we had to do. They were stopping, starting, mm. take after take, but ours were done in a one shot. So we were basically not allowed to get on stage unless we could prove that our talks were memorized and we had many rehearsals. Uh, so they, you did get kind of two takes okay, because you had a dress rehearsal earlier that day. And then you had the full run of show later in the day and they used they had kind of like, you know, they could use footage from both. Although what, you know, they really were like, well, we can't do, you know, the editing will be too obvious. So you can't rely on that really. Uh, you kind of have to, so we did, we were, we, were mem we memorized our scripts and did it in one go, which was nerve wracking to say the least, even though I was an actor before I was, you know, there's a reason I quit acting. I wasn't exactly like very good at lines and blocking. So to put myself in a situation where I had to go back and learn lines and do blocking was definitely anxiety provoking. Well, it makes it so much more impressive now that I know you did all of that in one take, because that's mind blowing to me. I would have lost my train of thought at some point, got distracted by somebody in the front row. I don't even know. Oh, yeah, I'm we, away. we had speech coaches. They're really serious about it. Like they, they drilled us really hard wow. in the weeks leading up to it. And then I, everyone pulled it off. It was really amazing to see. I mean, we're just a bunch of bumbly, nerdy academics and they managed to make us not embarrassing. So it was great. Well, now I expect excellence for this podcast interview. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll do our best. <laughs> well, I, I know you are uh, a very uh, talented person, but I do really want to talk to you about this book that you have coming out. Do you have a release date for it yet, by the way? Yeah. October 6th. October 6th. Okay. I can't wait to yeah. get my hands on the finished product because I've been looking at a draft and you talk about all these graphs and charts and they're not in the draft that I have. Oh, so I'm so I excited. Send them to you. If you, <laughs> if you remind me after this call, send me a quick email through. I, that's the one part of the book that's not completely done, but most of the tools are in the, I don't know which version I sent you. I think we've been coordinating for a while on this. I can send you the PDF and also send you the toolkit. I'm happy to do that. Oh, cool. Well, I can't I wait to see that. I think it'll be final, final, but it'll be 75% of the way there, I think. Well, it's really great work. The book is called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. And, and what I find so fascinating about this is I just, I think time is one of those words that people use in a way that doesn't actually represent what they're experiencing in life. And that's really a lot of what you talk about in the book. So before we dive into that, just tell me why this is a subject that you're so passionate about. I am passionate about this topic, one, because I find this study of time really interesting. Uh, we know a lot from happiness about the, like, I'm a happiness researcher, and we know a lot from the happiness research uh, area, suggesting that a lot of our happiness is within our own control, how we, uh, you know, whether or not we socialize, how much we socialize, how much we work, and also how we spend our money can have a powerful impact on our happiness. I was trained in a lab that coined this very famous finding that spending money on others brings greater happiness than spending money on oneself. And that's true even at really small amounts of spending, spending $2.50 or $5 to help someone else can produce really meaningful benefits to your happiness. And the that seems intuitive that maybe that's not like so odd, like so kind of like mm. groundbreaking. It's nice to show it experimentally, but like, of course, uh, seems kind of obvious when you say it, but we actually think that spending money on ourselves is going to bring us right. greater joy than spending money on others. And so I was an undergrad when that research was published and it got me thinking, you know, if we make all these 
if we're kind of wrong about one of our fundamental resources, money, we probably are making suboptimal allocation decisions with regard to arguably the most important resource that we have, time. And so I started to look at whether people are spending time in ways that bring happiness. Mm -hmm. One, like what are the things that we can do around the margins, small decisions we can make in our everyday lives to have happier time? And two, why don't we spend more of our time engaging in activities that bring us joy? So this initial study in pro-social spending got me and my advisor thinking, we should also be thinking about not only how people are spending their money and whether they're allocating money correctly, but also how are they spending their time and are they spending time correctly? Um, and also really personally, I was, you know, I'm a, a junior faculty untenured at Harvard, definitely not an easy shtick. Sure. Uh, first couple of years uh, in my faculty career, I was really busy teaching and doing fieldwork in Kenya and grant writing and running a lab and teaching MBAs and learning how to do all this stuff on my own for the first time when, you know, the training wheels are off, you're no longer in yeah. grad school and it's up to you to sort of build your own career. And I was working a lot and it was, you know, I had made this cross-country, cross-continent move from Vancouver, British Columbia hmm. to Boston, Massachusetts, all my friends and family are on the West Coast. And I was sacrificing work over and over and over again. You know, I uh, ended up kind of killing a relationship of a decade because I was working all the time and my partner really didn't want to move here in part because I think they didn't feel like there was anyone to move for, even though we were yeah. together, I was always working. And I, you know, it was so ironic to me because I'd be giving these academic talks and I'd be talking about how time is more important than money. And here I am breaking up with a partner <laughs> of 10 years, hadn't talked to my parents in eight months, didn't see the, you know, hadn't met my best friend's kid from home. And, and I, it really got me thinking if I am struggling so much when I wrote a dissertation on the importance <laughs> of valuing time over money, Certainly all of us must be struggling. How can I begin to think about taking these ideas in the academic literature that I know and putting them into practice? So the book is really a synthesis of the research I was doing, but also my own personal struggle to value time over money. And then the culmination is this book, which kind of mixes science and practice together to try to help all of us make small decisions and major life decisions to live a happier and, and less stressful life. I want to say before we dive into time here and the book, I love the fact that there are people out there that are considered happiness researchers. I just want to say, I think that's <laughs> awesome. That's actually how I came across your name because I was listening to another podcast called The Happiness Lab and you were featured on that. And I just thought there was something so fascinating about what you were talking about that I was like, I need to reach out to this woman and see if she will actually speak with me. So I'm glad that we were able to make it work. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And I know it's, it's a recent phenomenon the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, it really has a lot to do with Ed Diener and other psychologists uh, like him who forged a path uh, and talked to a lot of economists and got policymakers to take happiness seriously. So it's really been a culmination over the last of research over the last 20 or 30 years, why someone like me is able to work in a business school, teach at Harvard, uh, because policymakers are recognizing that not only for individuals is money not everything, but also for societies, money is, mm -hmm. uh, is, is necessary, but not sufficient for improving citizens' welfare. And it's starting to become a widely recognized idea that we need to be focusing not only on um, financial gain for the happiness of our countries, but also on things like how citizens value leisure yeah. or um, how many hours they spend working. Those things matter a lot for happiness too. 
So I would say if I went outside right now and I tried to interview people, first of all, it'd be weird given the time that we're in. But uh, I, I think <laughs> if I you know, get away from me, <laughs> like that, six feet. Um, but I, I think if I ask people how much time they had in their day, a lot of people would say that they didn't have enough or they felt like they were burdened and didn't have the time to get things done that they wanted to. But one of the things that you really find in your research is that we actually have more time than we really ever have before. And I would love for you to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so it's so fascinating. I thought for sure, you know, seeing seeing the high rates of time stress. So so maybe we'll walk into this a little sure. bit. So what what I what I study is this idea of time poverty. Mm-hmm. And researchers have defined this as the feeling of having too many things to do and not enough time in the day to do them. And I've been investigating this idea over the last few years and in large scale survey data, one data set notably I collect or I've analyzed has two and a half million Americans from all walks of life represented. And we find that this feeling of time poverty of having too many things to do, not enough time to do them is a stronger predictor of misery than being unemployed. Mm -hmm. So this is like a serious, phenomenon, this stress, this feeling of overwhelm, it affects 80% of the U.S. population. This was pre-COVID, but I have data suggesting now that uh, that hasn't gotten better, if anything, we're more stressed (laughs) than we were before the pandemic. Um, And, and, you know, it it afflicts many people in society, the wealthiest, uh, the poorest, men and women. Of course, there's individual differences, but what's really striking to me is most people say that they don't have enough time. Um, and as you rightfully point out, it's not coming. So when I started, when I saw these patterns, I was like, well, you know, certainly that it's just because we're all working more, but as it turns out, we're actually working slightly fewer hours than we used to. It depends on what data set you look at, but for the most part, we're working about three to five hours less in part because we can outsource more modern conveniences are saving us time. We don't hand wash our laundry and watch it dry. That's that saves us time as compared to in the 1950s. But things like our constant connection to technology are making us feel very time poor in part because our leisure is constantly disrupted and distracted, which creates this feeling of goal conflict where you're doing one thing, but feel like you should be doing another. And that's why in part we're seeing these rising rates of time poverty. So it's really psychological. Mm. It's not necessarily driven by not actually having enough time, but feeling like we don't have enough time. And there are many reasons, but I think technology is the biggest culprit or one of um, that is making all of us feel increasingly time poor. Yeah, I have to say I agree with you on that one because there have definitely been days where maybe I've worked technically less hours, but at the end of the day, I think to myself, I am so tired, but I really don't feel like I accomplished anything today. So you have that feeling of exhaustion, like you did a full hard days of work, but really you worked like four or five hours, you know? So there is still that exhaustion there though. And I've never really understood why that was the case. Yeah, and it, it has a lot to do with the fact that technology pulls us out of the present and into some other, you know, and it's very uh, other thing, that other thought, other kind of part of our lives. And this flipping back and forth, this, kind of going from one task to another, going from our technology to a work task, back to our technology is tiring. It creates this kind of attentional residue. So this kind of cognitive overwhelm, which is physically tiring, but it's also, again, this goal conflict component is really important because it also is you know, making us not only just task switch in general, but sometimes switch roles in our life. We go from, you know, texting with our partner to texting with our colleague. Mm. We go from home to work and 
work to parent, work to caregiver, and that switching is also really exhausting. So it's not just the fact that our leisure is getting disrupted that's creating this feeling of stress or time poverty, but also because we're our technology also makes us role switch, which can be very dis- disruptive as well. I've never heard that phrase before, role switch, used in that way. And, and especially nowadays, too, because a lot of us, I live with my wife, and we're working from home together. Uh, now, during our general work hours, we have a separate space where we can do our jobs away from each other. But then there's that middle part of the day where we might try to grab lunch together, but we're still answering emails. And you're right. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I would be having a conversation with her as a husband, and then I would immediately have to go send an email as maybe a coworker. And, and there is a mental switch that takes place there to be able to do that job appropriately. And I think actually this is partially driving why we're all so tired in the current pandemic situation is this constant role switching, this living at work that we are feel yeah. like that we all feel like we're doing. Um, and I, I do like in our data, like I said, we're, we're coming up, me and my, a couple of my colleagues wrote an op-ed for HBR that should come out in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, we kind of, make this proposition that we should all be time rich right now. We're not commuting. Like we, we must all feel kind of like relaxed and not stressed. And of course that's not at all the case If anything. My, one of my colleagues has research showing that we work longer and we yeah. have more meetings during, during the COVID work from home period than we did before. And we're also not taking those breaks and transitions, which used to help with the role mm-hmm. switching. Um, So we've been advocating for, well, if we don't have a commute, can you create a boundary in your day that's a walk around the block or, you know, writing a task, uh, a to-do list of all the things you need to do as a way to ease into work? Because as much as commutes suck and are one of the things that steal your time, which I talk about in the book, they're actually also a really important psychological transition between personal and work. And that has completely gone missing in the work from home environment. And so we're really advocating for creating rituals, breaks, boundaries, and putting them back in because virtual work lacks that altogether. One thing that I started doing personally, because I was starting to find, and this is something that's an undercurrent in my office uh, personally, uh, is that people like to look busy. So there would always be a lot of unnecessary meetings just so someone could say, hey, I held this meeting today, so I accomplished something. So I started taking my dogs for walks whenever we would have one of these meetings. When we started working from home, I just wouldn't turn the camera on and I'd still be engaging and I'd still be a part of it, but I would be outside, you know, kind of enjoying the sunshine and, and getting out for a few minutes. And it really, it did help to break up the day and help me feel like at least I was accomplishing something in this time that generally would have been a complete waste of my day. Yeah. So you're definitely hitting on a couple of things that, that I talk about in the book. So the one is that part of the reason we're so time poor isn't just our technology, but busyness is a status symbol. Yes. Hours to proxy commitment, especially as work has gone from making widgets in a factory that's very objective and tangible to what your output is and how successful you are to these creative pursuits like hosting a good podcast or having interesting research ideas, which are harder to quantify. Uh, workplaces have started to use work hours or uh, or like the, the er- willingness to respond at any time of day or to be the first one to yeah. respond is like a proxy for good quality or a committed, uh, good quality work or a committed employee. And so you do, you end up in, you know, with organizations and all of our organizations do this, that waste our time with unnecessary paperwork, unnecessary meetings, just so that people 
you know, uh, the powers that be feel as if their workforce is committed and is willing to drop anything or to participate in a meeting that's unnecessary because it's always rushing from one meeting to another is a sign of importance, prestige, uh, and high status, especially in the modern work workplace today, and especially among knowledge workers or these kind of more um, white collar jobs where it would be harder to determine output. So that's one thing that you're picking up on that we find a lot of evidence for in our research. Um, and two, you're also kind of demonstrating a strategy in the book that I advocate for. So if you can't get rid of something you don't like, you still have to go to that meeting. Can you bundle it together with yeah. something else that's enjoyable to kind of offset that negative emotion or stress that you might feel from being part of something that you wish, you know, that there's high opportunity costs for, like, you know, for me, like faculty meetings, right? Is there is there something else? And I think the work from home environment actually does enable this. It enables sure. you to more than ever before take advantage of the fact that we're not physically located to sit in on a meeting while also enjoying the sunshine in the summer, taking your pet for a walk. So I think that's actually a great example of a strategy that I talk a little bit about in the book to make these negative moments more palatable. It's really interesting because the uh, the whole idea of looking busy has been something I've battled with for so many years. And it's kind of uh, come back to me in a, in a negative way because I always look at it as, for me anyway, throughout the week, things kind of even out. You know, we, you have the stereotypical 40-hour work week, right? Many people don't really operate by just 40 hours. But, uh, you know, say on Monday, I've got a light day and I'm only going to work five or six hours. I have no issue personally with leaving the office because I know there's going to be another day where I'm working nine or 10 hours. And then that's going to kind of even out as the week progresses. But there are so many bosses I find that don't view it that way. You know, they, they look like, what, how are you leaving so early? And it's, and it's kind of given me a negative reputation in some ways. And I'm like, I always say like, is the job done? Are, are we okay? Like, you know, I, I don't understand mm -hmm. the mental thing. Like you just said of putting status on how much time you're physically sitting there. If the work itself is getting done and it's getting accomplished the same way. Yeah. And I do really advocate for this idea of focusing on outcome as opposed to effort, um, yeah. because it's something that our workplaces have moved away from and is part of what is contributing to these feelings of time poverty among employees. And I think this opportunity of working from home actually provides all of us mm -hmm. with the opportunity to reflect on this proposition. Does more work hours actually lead to more productivity? And in most cases, the answer is no. And good research bears out the idea that the answer is no. Like, I love pushing back on people who are like, well, I have to work to be more productive, right. blah, blah. And I'm like, well, no, actually, like the best data suggests that the most productive people in your office do have this mentality of working to the output as opposed to working the longest hours and are more likely to take vacations. Those are the people who are going to be promoted the fastest because they're doing the highest quality work. They're putting in their energy and attention into what they're doing when they're doing it, but they're not spinning the wheel too much and, and losing, you know, kind of exhausting themselves in the process and losing that creativity. We've been talking a lot about uh, working and being an adult, but kids also have to deal with this in a different way too. And I, I feel like they're, they're kind of facing a different added unfair pressure right now in this situation too. And I know you talk a little bit about the, you know, how things change with adults and kids in the book a little bit. Can you talk more about that? So there's a couple of things going on right now. I mean, we are in a pandemic sure. and I think being like um, a college student and I've documented this in some of my most recent work with a few of my postdocs in my lab that 
students are stressed out and, and very reasonably so. They're in an economic recession. They're not, they might be living in their parents' basements. So they're not exactly having the college experience that they were envisioning when they signed up. Uh, but the students are able to capitalize in this moment and see it as an opportunity to reflect on their core values and to think about how their career might be an opportunity to give back are those students who are weathering this current situation and this current moment in the most positive way. They're reporting the least amount of stress, the most amount of optimism for the future. So again, kind of circling back to an earlier theme in our conversation, this orientation toward pro-sociality, towards civic engagement does seem to be buffering uh, some of this, the stress that students are experiencing right now. But in the book, I do talk about the fact that, you know, and we have one paper on this off my dissertation, that the jobs that we choose out of college can actually have a really fundamental impact on the happiness we gain over the course of you know, those initial three to five years after graduation. So we surveyed uh, a large group of Canadian undergrad students uh, at UBC during my dissertation about just under 2000. And we asked them if they valued money or if they valued time. So if they were willing to give up time to have more money or if they were willing to give up money in order to have more time. And what we found was a pretty consistent with my previous research, which is a fairly even split down the middle with kind of half the sample valuing time more than money and half valuing money over time. Of course, you can kind of guess which major the people who valued money did. Uh, <laughs> hint, hint, is this where I work currently. Uh, <laughs> finance and economic students were more likely to value money, which is interesting in and of itself. They're getting taught and they think more about uh, yeah. finance, fi financial gain as sort of like the best outcome to maximize. So you can think that those students were focusing more on that toward the end of college. And then when we followed up with students a couple of years later, students who said that they were valuing time more than money chose careers and, and educational pathways that were more intrinsically motivating. So they were more willing to choose jobs or educational trajectories because it was something they wanted to do versus something they had to do. Mm. And this predicted their happiness several years after graduation. So this just this mindset that we have around time versus money can have really powerful downstream consequences for the careers that we choose and also for our long-term happiness, just this orientation that we have around these two valuable resources. And this is really important right now because in an economic recession, our data, other, other of my colleagues' data suggests that we're much more likely to focus on money. Yeah. And that's partially rational. It's not irrational. We're in an economic downturn. The future is unstable. It's increasingly unstable, not just in the US, but all over the world in terms of careers are shorter. People change their jobs around more. Um, you, 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 all, all of us sort of feel precariously employed. And these feelings of financial uncertainty can result in valuing money more than time. So I think the conversation right now among, you know, uh, junior employees and college graduates is really to try to shift the conversation as much as we can away from pursuing a career just, you know, for money, but remembering that intrinsic motivation and enjoyment really does predict the happiness you're gonna get out of your entire lives. It fundamentally shapes how much time you're gonna have, which job you choose. It also fundamentally shapes the quality of your social interactions, who you're gonna interact with, and that when we're under financial uncertainty, when we look at two jobs, we wanna go with the one that's high status, high prestige, yeah. and that makes sense, and it's not wrong, but you should make sure that you ask yourself, well, am I sure I'm really ready to give up all the time that that job is going to take? Because in the actual experience of a job, 
you stop caring about the extrinsic rewards and the prestige. You pay way more attention to what's going on in the present moment. Do I like this job or not? Does this job suck? Because in the moment, the money doesn't become as worth it. When you're on the outside of a decision looking in, the money and prestige seem like the easy option to choose. But when you're actually living that life, you, you know, the money becomes not so much worth it. And you start thinking about all the things you gave up to get to that money. And, and if you are truly only doing it for the extrinsic reward and you're not getting any of that pleasure or satisfaction out of it, it will start to feel like you made the wrong decision. So I think the conversation all of us should be having with ourselves is, yes, we're in an economic recession, but am I making all of my choices with a money mindset? And if the answer is yes, I need to at least be thinking about how I could offset some of those financial decisions. We can't choose money all the time. We shouldn't. That means we're going to be, you know, sort of uh, less uh, socially connected. We're going to be lonelier. We're going to be less healthy. Maybe we'll live less long. Maybe we won't be able to enjoy any of the free time we actually get when we have it. So we really need to be making sure, especially right now, and especially as college students are sort of entering the workforce, that we maintain the conversation around doing a job or pursuing a career because you love it, not just because it's going to bring some sense of financial stability. And I think that's a really important conversation for all of us to have in the back of our minds right now, especially because an economic recession or feelings of financial insecurity can really lead us to down this path of pursuing money. I'll say one other thing on yeah. this point is I published a paper with my uh, one of my PhD students last year, and we find that countries who have a higher proportion of citizens who value leisure mm -hmm. over work are happier, unsurprisingly, yeah. but they're also better able to weather an economic recession. When our identity is so wrapped up in work and then something happens to our job or happens to the economy, our subjective well-being, our happiness is really negatively impacted. But when we have things outside of work, like leisure, friends and family, then we're less likely to have our happiness significantly impacted by uh, changes in the economic environment. So I do think it's a, again, that's like another piece of evidence suggesting even now we want to be thinking about choosing jobs, choosing careers or making career decisions with at least the consideration of our time in addition to our finances. There's a lot to unpack in there, um, but one thing that popped into my head is my wife is a teacher, and prior to the pandemic, she started uh, making a transition to a new school. Um, she Things were not going the way she wanted to at her previous school, which was also pretty far away. It would take 40 minutes to an hour, depending on traffic, to get to school and back. Um, so, you know, spending almost two hours a day in the car, the new school that she will be teaching at in the fall, or, well, she'll be at home, but anyway, the school that she would be teaching at in person is about two miles away. So the commute is approximately five minutes. Minutes. Um, now, something did change over the summer where her old school was potentially going to be offering her more money. And she kept going through this like, oh, did I make the right decision? Did I make the right? And I, I kept having to try to talk to her. And I'm not one to be forceful and try to tell someone what to do. But I kept trying to point out, you're going to have so much more time in your day. Plus, she's also pregnant at the moment. You'll be closer to home. It'll be less stressful on you to do all of this. Yes, more money would be nice and it would be helpful. But what comes with that money? Like that crazy community still comes with it. The stress still comes with it. Being unhappy at the job situation still comes with that. There are so many more positive benefits to maybe taking a little bit less money, but being closer to home and being in a more relaxed environment with a bigger team and hopefully an easier situation. And I, I think it's finally started to come together a little bit, but, uh, but it is interesting how 
even as an adult, that still pops into your head of like more money, more money, more money, money. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not our fault. We're socialized in that way. Yeah. Right? We're told that we should be focusing on money as opposed to time. We're taught that money is really important, that we should be working as hard as possible. So no wonder it creates this feeling of guilt. We, we grew up in a culture that has high Protestant work ethic beliefs where le leisure is seen as lazy. I have a whole project now with one of my postdocs where we're trying to legitimize leisure like make people feel <laughs> like it's okay to take time off because these beliefs are so pervasive like what your wife is saying is totally exactly how we all feel when right. we make decisions for time as opposed to money and it's not our fault it's okay to feel bad if we've been taught that leisure is bad so we need to kind of un undo this leisure is wasteful belief that we've been taught and really really think about the consequences as you're saying. One thing that I found successful in some of my studies is actually framing a decision between a time and money trade-off like the one you just described as a pro-social act. So not thinking of like, well, I'm gonna be less stressed, but actually focusing on how, well, now we're gonna to get to spend more time together. So if you kind of frame it as how you having more time and less stress will help others, that can really help people get over the guilt because now they're like, well, okay, if I don't work, those extra hours, I will be able to cook more, be home more. And, you know, that's actually a benefit to my kid or to my husband, to my wife. So that, that kind of reframing can yeah. be uh, one way to get people to see that making the time choice isn't selfish, that it can actually be pro-social or helpful to someone that they care about. Totally by accident, I found myself in a situation with this podcast where a few months ago, I interviewed a gentleman who wrote a book about rethinking success. And then shortly after I interviewed someone that was talking about rethinking the idea of big changes in life, like people are afraid to make big changes in life, but really they could be very helpful. They could be exciting. They could really take you on a better path. And then we had also been speaking to via email and I was like, I really think I just tied three things together <laughs> that are kind of all big rethinking success, rethinking, you know, changes and the way we look at changes and now rethinking time and how we put the focus on time. And I, I really just thought it was fascinating how all of those things really tied together. You know, the, the success one, the guy was talking about uh, speaking with these huge multi-million, even billionaire people that were absolutely miserable with their life. They really didn't mm -hmm. like anything about it. But, you know, you or I may be sitting here much further below them are thinking, look at how lucky they must be. They own sports teams. They've got private planes. But meanwhile, they're on that private plane alone and they're not happy. And it's so much of that ties into what you've been talking about. With we we chase we chase you know money and we chase all that. And we forget about the time that we need to create relationships and just to create happiness in our own life too. Yeah, and you know the people who are busy, uh, you know, working all the time. Like if you ask them what your idea, like one way that I always kind of keep myself in check is. And there's a research paper on this too, of course, but is like, what would my ideal day look like? Yeah. And what did yesterday look like? And how far apart am I in my ideal day versus yesterday? And actually, when we do that exercise, I think most of us will come to the realization that you're also saying that mostly we work too much, check email too much, don't work out enough, don't cook enough, don't call our mom enough. And so it's like the secret is doing something every day that helps your yesterday look 
closer to your ideal day? If you had like, if you had one last day, yeah. how would you spend that day? And making sure that your days look more like your ideal day and less, you know, like uh, a day full of only work and no social interaction, all work, no fun or whatever. Um, and I think doing that exercise will be like, you know, does help you realize, oh crap, like I spend a lot of time <laughs> wasting my time. I spend a lot of time checking email. I say yes to things I shouldn't say yes to. Spend a lot of energy too, talking to people or, or doing things for work colleagues that I don't care about, that aren't helping me live my values in life. Why am I doing that? And that's, those are like good questions to be asking yourself is like trying to push on your default habits around time. Why am I spending? And we do a little bit of this in the book. Like, yeah. why did I just waste that last half hour scrolling through Instagram? Mm -hmm. Did I want to be doing that? Could I have been doing something better instead? Like just starting to ask yourself these like small questions, because it's true that you, that, you know, you could make major life decisions like career decisions or moving that will radically alter the amount of time that you have but making it also a habit to make small decisions around the margins can also really powerfully pay off for happiness. And I think this is one of the key messages I wanna get um, out there from this book is, I think a lot of people think about solving time poverty and stress in their lives by doing drastic things, quitting their job, moving to the countryside, uh, taking a sabbatical, and those things are fine, that's good. But really my research is, all about like small decisions around the margins that can have huge impacts on happiness. 10 minutes of walking around the block can produce like half the happiness gain of getting married. So why don't we just start really small and make these small decisions instead of passively looking at social media, substitute that time to do 10 jumping jacks between meetings or whatever, or look up a new recipe or you know, create a vision board for when you can travel again of the next destination you're going to, going to go to or do a craft with your kid. There's a whole bunch of stuff we could do with that 30 minutes that will make us a lot happier than probably what we do use that 30 minutes for, which is, I know I'm guilty of this social media yeah. or Twitter or the latest thing about politics, whatever <laughs> rabbit hole we go down, right? So it's not only do these major life decisions that we've been talking about matter, so do these small decisions that we kind of almost don't make that are made for us by our habits. Those also really matter. And I think so much of it comes back to that too, because it is those little things that you wouldn't necessarily consider. You know, if I get lost on a project for work for two hours, I don't think of that as I just wasted two hours, you know, but I could spend two hours on Instagram on a day. You know what I mean? And it's just because it's just there. And I, I heard a comedian a while back talk about how cell phones effectively cured boredom. Like we no longer have something called boredom in our life because every time we're quote unquote bored, you break out your phone and there's Instagram or there's a Sudoku or crossword, but whatever. There's always something at your fingertips to do. But, you know, as we're talking, I almost feel like boredom is an awesome thing. Like, I, I want to have boredom back. I think I, I miss that. I want it. Yeah, I know. And I, there's some studies in the book that I talk about this, like human beings are averse to idleness. So there's a, a program of research by one of my colleagues called Idleness Aversion. And they do all these funny experiments. In one study, they stick college students in a room and they just you know, like they leave students with an option. Those students can just sit there. They don't have their phones. They have nothing. It's just themselves in a room. Or the students can blast themselves with mild electric shocks. 
instead of just sitting there. And students would rather blast themselves <laughs> with mild electric shocks than sit there with only their thoughts. Um, and civil survey data also bears this out, like working parents with kids under the age of five don't know what to do when they find themselves with unexpected time off when their kid's not around. Right. They're like, oh my, oh my God, like the world's going to end if I don't just fill this time with something. And we talk about this a little bit in the book. It's called like the mere urgency effect too. So, so not only are, do we have this aversion to doing nothing, we'll just kind of do anything <laughs> to get, to fill the feeling of not having anything to do. So we'll check emails instead of working on a, a big work project or I don't know, a long-term personal fitness goal. We'll, we'll just fill it with literally any small thing that will give us that kind of dopamine hit of accomplishment instead of actually doing something more meaningful. And so it's a habit that we all have where we'll just prioritize unimportant, urgent things as opposed to important but non-urgent things over and over and over again, which of course gets in the way of accomplishing important things in life <laughs> or having, having the life that we want uh, because we're just constantly filling our time with things that are urgent but not important. It's funny, that kind of ties into pretty much how we started this interview too. And when we talk about uh, just trying to fill fill time, you know, we, we check an email as opposed to spending that time going to get a workout started, you know, and, and like you said, it gets the dopamine hit that you need and you feel accomplished because you did something. I almost wish our brains knew enough to not give us the dopamine hit and say, <laughs> stop doing this, go do something that's better for you <laughs> than opening up social media again. You know? <laughs> exactly. I know. That's why I advocate for a helping like helping people help themselves by getting at like app blockers yeah. like website blockers there's i think i wrote like a small article on this uh, at one point and there was this new tech startup that was every time you walked into the family room it turned everyone's phones off like mm. because then you just take the decision out of your hands like technology is addictive Research has shown this. We're not very good at self-control, obviously. <laughs> like, it keeps me employed, but still. Um, and so why not even just not rely on self-control? Use some commitment device. Use something that turns your phone off when you're trying to get work done. Use uh, website blockers. Turn off your outlook. Whatever you need to do to basically ensure that you're prioritizing the important stuff and not just whatever randomly comes your way. So loaded question for you as we kind of get uh, towards the end here. I know your book doesn't come out until I think you said October 6th is when the book comes yes, out. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so people can't read it at the moment, but uh, give us something that we could actively work on in our lives to try to capitalize on that time that we don't think we have, but we actually do have on an everyday basis. I would say the strategy that I like recommending in the current moment, because we are stressed, we're in a stressful moment. When we're stressed, we want to take on urgent and unimportant things because it helps us feel good, is this exercise that I call, um, which is pro proactive time. And what that is, is you, at the beginning of a week, set 15 to 30 minutes on a Monday or, you know, Monday morning, Monday afternoon, what, whatever your favorite time block is and you hold that meeting with yourself and you think about the two or three most important, not urgent things that you want to accomplish that week. And then you stick another two blocks in your schedule of two hours by which you're not going to have your email open. You're going to turn your phone off and you're going to hold those appointments with yourself as if they were the most important doctor's appointment in the whole world. And you work on whatever those important but not urgent things are. Um, and because again, like, 
you know, we're living in a super insane time. We're very stressed and that makes a lot of good sense, but we're also feeling really distracted and it can be hard to, you know, this anxiety makes us work on uh, things that just kind of come our way or fill our time with things that feel easy. So I'm definitely advocating for this really simple strategy of, you know, four and a half hours for yourself every week where it's either work or personal, uh, doesn't matter what, you know, what domain it falls in. And you just set aside those meetings with yourself and don't let anything move them so that you can work on important stuff and not just all the urgent distraction that's going on in, in our world right now. Well, I love this. Uh, so thank you so much for all of this conversation. If somebody wants to find out more about you, Ashley, uh, where should they go to do that? Um, you could check out my website, awillans.com. I'm Googleable, findable. If you look time, money, <laughs> happiness, HBS, Ashley, I'll come up. Uh, but you could, but you could reach out to me on my website or via Twitter. Well, I'm so excited we finally got a chance to catch up. I think this book is so interesting, and there's so many things about time that I never would have thought of um, had I have not been able to get my hands on this. So I'm looking forward to everybody else being able to read it on October 6th uh, when it comes out. It's called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. Uh, before I let you go, are you ready for the school year? Are you set? Yes, I'm <laughs> set. I've got... I'm 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 a tentative yes. Uh, I've got a green screen that doesn't work and a standing desk, and I'm working out of my storage closet slash guest bedroom, and we're ready. We're ready to do this online teaching thing. Well, I love it. Ashley, again, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. I know you're very busy between the book and getting ready for school, so I appreciate you squeezing me, and thank you for all this really, uh, really important information. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great chatting. Huge thank you to Ashley Willens for joining me today. There is so much in that conversation and her work that I've already started working into my daily life. I hope you were able to pull some nuggets out of that as well. And thank you to all of you for sharing some of your day with us. I really appreciate you checking out Be More Well, and I hope you'll be back for more future episodes. Until next week, take care.